the primary skill set is the attitude that you have, your, your way with people. Whether you, it's amazing how many salespeople, when they greet a potential customer, they don't smile. They don't make the potential customer feel welcome. And, and, and to me, it's the basics. It's a smile. It's a handshake. It's, it's the, the welcoming feeling. It's the personality of what can I do to make your day or life better. I'm Rebecca White, and today's guest is Jason Kuhn. Born and raised in Allentown, Pennsylvania, today Jason is a successful entrepreneur who splits his time between Tampa and Chicago. A serial entrepreneur, Jason loves the deal, and he's certainly an expert in this space, having transacted over 50 deals in ventures in automotive retailing, insurance, technology, software, and real estate development. But he's not only an excellent negotiator, he's a seasoned business operator who knows how to extract value from both high-performing companies as well as distressed organizations. Over the years, his companies have won awards of distinction for achieving outstanding customer satisfaction as well as operational excellence. Born and raised in Allentown, Pennsylvania, Jason holds degrees in business administration, law, and has a specialization in tax law. Today, we talk about how he transitioned from his career as an M&A tax consultant for KPMG in their New York City headquarters to serial entrepreneur, investor, and board member for a number of startups and not-for-profit organizations. We also dig into industry disruption and discuss ways student entrepreneurs can take advantage of these volatile business environments. I hope you enjoy this episode. Morning, Jason. Thanks for being with us on The Factor today. Good morning. Pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have you. You're a very successful uh, Tampa Bay entrepreneur that I've gotten to know through our mutual board work with Embark Collective, which is a wonderful group that really helps promote technology entrepreneurship here. And I've just been really impressed. You've been in to talk to our students some, and that's really been fun uh, for them and for me. And so I'm just excited to have you on the podcast today and learn more about your background and your entrepreneurial journey. Well, perfect. Let's go. All right. So tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, You know, where did you grow up? Um, Did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Did this start like with a lemonade stand when you were a little boy? So I actually grew up the oldest of three boys in um, the northeastern part of Pennsylvania. And my father was, he was an accountant by training, but really was an entrepreneur um, in his heart. Um, He had a great ability to analyze and distill a lot of information simultaneously from a financial standpoint um, and and bought and sold several small businesses during his lifetime. But the one thing he lacked is he really uh, did not have a high risk tolerance, which I think prevented him from going further within his, the entrepreneurial landscape that um, he would have enjoyed. Um, 
my brothers and I have um, sort of a wide range of risk tolerances among us. Um, I, I think within our family, I'm not even the most successful entrepreneur. My brother, my middle brother, Eric, um, founded two. He's now on to his second very, very successful business. He took his first company public. He must have only been 28 or 29 years old. And so, um, you know, and this was nothing uh, surprising to any of us. It was, um, you know, certainly work was encouraged growing up. I had a paper route when I was 12. Um, my brothers and I were selling baseball cards when we were 14, 15, 16 years old. And, and I actually started a tennis camp, uh, I think, during my college years. So wanting to be, you know, being curious about business was something that I always had. It was never really about how can I make a dollar or two, although that was, that was always good. Um, but the money was was usually secondary. It was just out of a curiosity, I think, that um, that the entrepreneurial fire in me was was born. You know, that you mentioned curiosity. Sir Richard Branson, I think, says that's the one thing that differentiates entrepreneurs from everybody else. And of course, he's been a, a role model entrepreneur in many ways. You know, you t speaking of role models, you mentioned your father, because I had a role model in my mother, who was also an entrepreneur. And you talk about this mindset. And so are there one or two lessons maybe, you know, you mentioned that risk tolerance wasn't part of your father's uh, DNA necessarily, but that there were other uh, attributes. Uh, are there one or two that stand out for you that you remember yeah. lessons that you and your brothers got that led to this entrepreneurial success that you've had? Yes, you know, and I think a lot of the lessons transfer into into life in general. For example, I I think to be successful in business in general, you have to be able to make decisions with less than a complete data set. Most people, before they make a big decision, want to gather all the information and take a lot of time to do that. And 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 you just don't have the time um, in business and, and sometimes in life to do that. And so it's learning to gather whatever the most important knowledge is and then make a judgment call and go and live with the consequences and move on from that. And so I think that that, that was very, very important. I think also, you know, we talk a lot about failure in the entrepreneurial community and people have different viewpoints on, um, on failure. But, but I think my perspective is it's okay to fail. It's great to fail. I certainly failed a lot of times, but you want to fail small. You don't, you don't want to fail big. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there's sort of this concept of, a, of convexity around failing. And, and, you know, if you can fail small a thousand times and then succeed really big one time, um, you're doing okay. So that's, I think that those were some of the things that I, that I picked up that I certainly use both in business and in life in general. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really powerful one. And I love the way that you describe it, fail small. Sometimes we talk about failing early in the process, so you don't have quite as much invested. And I think it's a similar concept. 
But, you know, learning, uh, sort of being given permission in a way at a young age to make a mistake, I think, can be really powerful because, uh, you know, this need for perfectionism can be painful and get in the way, I think, a lot of times. So uh, that's a a really powerful one. I want to revisit that a little bit um, in, in a few minutes. But what, let's talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. So Kuhn Automotive, of course, is, is a, has been a big success for you, but I know there are other entrepreneurial efforts along the way and things that you're doing now. Let's talk about how did you get from, you know, I know you're a lawyer <laughs> and you're, you also have a background in tax, which sure. I, I actually want to ask you a few questions about as well. Sure. But how did, how, let's, let's talk about your path. How did, how yeah. did you get to, to Kuhn Automotive? Yeah, it it was a journey like most people's where you you know you don't really plan it out. Um, I was in law school, um, getting my master's in tax law at the time, and I met uh, the woman who was uh, to become my first wife, um, and and her family was in the car business down in South Florida, and. Um, and I think it was right after we got engaged, she decided she really wanted to move uh, closer to home. And so we ended up moving to Miami and her family, they offered me uh, the opportunity to come work for them and learn the business. And so I, I um, transitioned from, um, from, in essence, doing corporate mergers and acquisition consulting to selling cars. And <laughs> it was it was tough. It was there were long days. Um, I was selling in a in a part of Miami that was predominantly Spanish speaking. And so there were a lot of roadblocks where I remember coming home at the end of the day being miserable. Um, it, there were uh, just times I thought I had made a terrible mistake. And little did I know that it was that experience, um, grinding it out, learning what salespeople had to go through day in and day out, that really made me a much better owner years later. Um, and, and so I did that for, for a few years and went through a management training program. And then I think I made the decision that I really wanted to work for myself. I think that I had the the self-awareness that I am a terrible employee. Um, <laughs> I think that I always have been. And, and that I wanted to be the one to make or break my destiny. And so we left Miami and I bought a very small rundown car dealership in Gainesville, Florida, which sounds... Um, it sounds luxurious because it was Porsche, BMW, Volkswagen, but it was anything but. It was sort of like a dirt lot. Porsche, in fact, came in and they said on, on my first day, we really want to close the Porsche point down. And I begged them not to. And they said, fine, but you know, we're only going to give you one car a month. And and it was hard. I, I, I remember I couldn't pay myself for the first three or six months. And I was working 24-7. We only had... 18 or 20 employees, and um, but I stuck it out. I ended up uh, finding creative ways to buy cars. And after um, a year or 18 months, I had built it up into a thriving business to where, I don't know, two years after I bought it, uh, my phone rang and I got an offer for 
something like 20 times what I had paid to sell it. And so the journey began. And um, that was really the start of my love and passion, more so for the deal than for the actual car business. I, I like cars, but I'm not what you would call a car enthusiast. Mm-hmm. But I love the deal and uh, worked very, very hard to uh, learn the landscape of who owned car deal- dealerships in the state of Florida, what my competition was doing. Uh, we, we ended up moving to Tampa and I bought a Ford dealership in uh, Newport Ritchie at the time. And, um, and I just kept growing. And, and as I would buy one, fix one up and sell it, I would continue to push all the chips in back into the center. I, I, I never took a dollar off the table for the first 15 years. Um, maybe that was stupid. Maybe that was naive. But, um, but I had the confidence in myself that I could make whatever I was doing successful as long as I controlled my own path. And, and you, as you pointed out, you loved the deal. So it wasn't time for you to cash out and take a bunch of money off the table and, and you know, hang out in Cancun or something, right? <laughs> Even well, though you well, could have maybe. Yeah. And, you know, that's the crazy thing. So there's many different entrepreneurial paths. So most people, when they think of an entrepreneur, they think of somebody who's inventing or creating something or providing a new service. But I didn't do that. So in fact, it's sort of the opposite. Car dealers are, uh, so if you think about this model, we're all given the same product. We have to buy it for the same amount. We are really subject to a marketing campaign that we can't control. And then we're told to go and build a highly, exp- a very, very expensive building on Main and Main that you're going to have a lot of fixed costs that are associated with it. And then it's sort of like good luck. And if you sort of drew this up, nobody, nobody would offer uh, to go in and, and, and spend all of their time doing this. But that's what car dealers in general go through. And I think it's what make car dealers in general very, very, very successful um, at what they do because you, you, you just have the experience to differentiate yourself. And when the only thing you can do to gain or lose a sale is to provide a better experience than your um, competitor, it forces you to be creative. It forces you to be scrappy. It forces you to think outside the box and all of the uh, wide-ranging skill sets that I think are important for entrepreneurs. There is so much insight in that. And, you know, our listeners, a lot of our listeners are students or people who would like to be entrepreneurs. There's so much in what you just said there. Because I've interviewed hundreds, thousands, actually, of entrepreneurs over the years. I've been an entrepreneur myself. And, you know, it's so true that those times, uh, you know, those challenges are the things that really help us build our unique um, our unique offerings or our, our bill, you know, our, they require us to be creative, as you pointed out. And that's where we get our uniqueness. That's where we get our special, the special sauce, so to speak. Right. You know, car, uh, no, you know, nothing about you, but car dealers and car dealerships have a really bad reputation among people. Most people would rather do most anything than have to go <laughs> negotiate. We hear root with canal, a car. but yes. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I didn't want to say that one. Uh, but, but um, you know, what do you think has been, I mean, what, what's been the problem in, in the, the industry at large? Because obviously you had to start thinking about that pretty deeply because, you know, you were there because you wanted to create a successful business and, and be better than everybody else that you were competing against. Yeah. Well, for a long time, the model has been broken. And let's face it, the car dealer as a middle man, I'm going to use a gender pronoun, but it, it is a flawed concept. Um, you, you should, you know, in today's day and age, you should be able to take your phone, click, 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 have a car show up, you know, sign on the iPad, and, you know, and you're done. And, and, and look, to be fair, there are certain startups that have begun to do that. But there are, there are just a lot of reasons why the distribution model is broken. Now, they, car manufacturers have an awful lot of money invested in this model. The car dealers have, have more money invested. Um, but it's, it's sort of the reason why back in 2015 or 16, I decided to start to get out of the business and to sell some of my dealerships because... I, I look down the pipeline and and I'm not saying that dealerships as a model are going to go away entirely, but they are going to continue to change. I don't think for the better. And I wanted to, you know, at that time, I still hadn't taken any real money off of the table. And it was a good time for me to do that and to diversify into other ventures that I thought had more tailwinds behind them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that was about the time. I mean, Carvana, of course, has had a lot of success. I, one of my uh, former guests was the founder of Carlipso, who, who Carvana bought to become who they are. And, uh, you know, we had lots of conversations about that, too. But, it, you know, the one big challenge I see in there is, uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, banking, for example. Who would have thought many years ago that banking could be, uh, you know, could be pretty much all online. I mean, at one time, we all felt like we needed to talk to our banker and know them personally and that sort of thing. But, you know, I was on a bank board and we weren't building bank branches for sure because of the, many of the things you're talking about. But how do you get a, around the the, uh, the need or the desire to try out a car? Do you, do you have a showroom maybe that dealers well, provide? Well, yeah, then- I mean, so I, so I think a, a middle ground would be... Sort, so, for example, if you take a franchise like Toyota, I think there are nine Toyota dealerships within the Tampa Bay market, which is crazy. I, I, so I think if you had maybe three... Um, industrial park lots full of new Toyotas where you could go and test drive the car. They could bring it to you. And then maybe 20 or 25 service centers. That would be a lot more convenient model than just eight or nine dealerships. Um, it, w- it would be better a better model for the dealer, a better model for the manufacturer, better for the consumer. And look, there are a lot of things that or there are some things today in society that are business concepts that are better for the consumer that the business owners have yet to figure out how to make money on. Uber right. being one, yeah. right? And so it's great for consumers. They still can't figure out a way to monetize that for profitably. And so um, I think, look, I, and service is another part. Of, you're, you know, you're always going to have to bring your car in or have it brought in for you. Um, yes, some some 
you know, you'll be able to do some updates via chip, you know, where your car doesn't have to come in, but, but things will break. And so again, the repair shops won't go away as a concept, but just the entire model of high fixed costs continuing to get, you know, higher. And I think the last five or seven years, we've been existing in a very, very low interest rate environment. A lot of car dealers have spent an awful lot of money either building new dealerships or buying, making new acquisitions. And I think that could come home to roost um, should rates really, really climb. Even if they climb to four or five percent, it's not the nominal rate. It's the fact the interest expense will be three or four or five hundred times or five X what you know, the original rate was. So, you know, it's a, the business is very cyclical. Um, There are ups, there are downs. Uh, But for me, it was a good time to try some other things. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I think it's fascinating. And and you grew this to what size? I mean, how many dealerships did you have at your largest? I think I was trying to, I think I ended up buying 12, 13 or 14 franchises over, over, 20-ish years. Uh, We never had all of those simultaneously. Volkswagen was the franchise that I had the most of. I think I had four Volkswagen dealerships at one point. But I owned Porsche, Ford, Acura, um, Honda. And the business model is exactly the same. It's, you know, the cars are different. the, The customers might be different. But the dealership business is exactly the same, whether you're selling a Ford or a Porsche. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, teams and people and some of your philosophy and what you learned because you came from a law background. I'm married to a lawyer, so <laughs> I know, I know what that can be like. Um, you know, what was your, uh, what was your, you know, what was your strategy around people and, and what did, what were some of the creative things that you did as a leader um, in, in, in this very challenging industry, quite honestly, which I think translates to a lot of industries today because I think there's a lot of industries in transition. No question, Rebecca. I, I think that um, that was one of the toughest transitions for me coming out of um, the environment I was in into the car business. The car business, like a lot of businesses, has a very wide range of jobs and pay scales. And, um, you know, we have employees that make $12 an hour and we have employees that make, you know, they could make two, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year. And um, the recruiting, the training, the motivating, the compensating of everybody under one roof is a very difficult, it was difficult 20 years ago. It's exponentially more difficult today. I distinctly remember that um, at the beginning of my career, one of my um, lot porters didn't show up for a day and I went to his supervisor and I said, you need to get rid of him. He just didn't call in. He just didn't show up. And, and I was told very early on um, that if that was my reason for terminating somebody in the car business, then I was going to be looking for people for a very, very long time because, you know, certain employees just, you know, with certain jobs just would decide they don't want to come into work. And um, so it was, it was, it was difficult to learn how to um, 
differentiate ourselves by being the type of company that we wanted to be, which really started with formulating the way that we wanted people to feel. Look, the alarm clock goes off in the morning and you have to like in life what you're doing. Life is short. If you do not like what you're doing, you know, day in and day out and week in and week out and year in and year out, certainly, then go and do something else. Um, so I very much believe that when the alarm clock went off in the morning, I want all of my employees to feel good about where they're going to work, good about, feel good about the company that is taking care of them, feel good about the moral character of the owners, that not only we were going to have the money to pay them, but that we believed in treating everybody fairly, giving everybody the opportunities they deserved. From a very early time period on, we had a very diverse workplace, and I was very proud of that. Um, I love, I mean, you know, we had a, a, um, higher percentage of females in the business than most car dealerships. And I, and I loved, um, love that and continue to, to want to build on that today. And so it, it's a, it was certainly a learning curve for me. Um, and, and we made a lot of mistakes, but, um, um, you know, and like you referred to, it, it's it's gotten even more challenging today, for sure. Yeah, I know talent talent acquisition right now is at an all time challenge. It probably as long as I've been working, it's one of the most challenging times because I think a lot of you know there have been a lot the Great Resignation, of course, and a lot of things that have happened post pandemic or during and post. But but I know in the car dealership. Because a few years ago, I did some consulting work for a, a dealership here, and one of their biggest challenges was getting talent in the um, in the maintenance side and the repair side, because it had you know the industry had changed so much, and so many of their employees were older, and it was hard to attract young people to this you know to this industry. And I know they were looking at how to build a pipeline. That was one of their biggest challenges to to the maintenance and mechanic side. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm on the board of Marine Max, and we have the same thing with boat mechanics. It's not a fun job a lot of times, even though it's a very highly skilled and well-paying job. It's a very well-paying job. And, and it's something, again, from an ethos of the business. You have to put... It's a it's a chicken and the egg thing. You have to put the money out first for training and to buy tools and to teach these young adults a skill set that can provide very, very well down the line for for themselves and their loved ones. But um, you can't just wave a magic wand and find people that are already skilled today uh, to come in. They're just they're just aren't enough highly skilled mechanics in the workforce. And so you have to invest the money to create that pipeline. And a lot of business owners don't want to put the dollars in first. They want you to show them how they're going to get the dollars out. And mm -hmm. so that's a mindset as well. And it's a it's certainly a risk approach you have to take uh, because there is risk associated with that. Employees may not work out or they may leave right after you train them or for a whole for a whole host of reasons um, you may not get the return on your investment but there is no other way 
I think today. Yeah, and and um, you know another so besides people, another really I would think very important part of 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 your industry and most industries is the uh, is the sales side. And how important is it for um, let's say a student who wants to be a, you know own their own business someday to gain some sales skills. Would that be an important thing for them to spend a little time on? So sales is so funny. So because I used to teach sales training in my stores for a few years and and it, it's very interesting how most people's perception about sales is that the most important thing is learning intricate details about the product you are selling. And while that is important, the 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 primary skill set is the attitude that you have your your way with people whether you it's amazing how many salespeople when they greet a potential customer they don't smile they don't make the potential customer feel welcome and 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 to me it's the basics it's a smile it's a handshake it's it's the the welcoming feeling. It's the personality of what can I do to make your day or life better. If a potential salesperson has those skills and that's it, I can teach everything else. If you don't have that demeanor and personality and desire to please people, then it doesn't matter whether you memorize the horsepower on every single different car we sell, you are never going to be successful. Yeah, that's a really good point. So it's really knowing more, figuring out more about that customer, right? Putting your attention on the customer than on the product you're selling. You have to know the product. There's no doubt about you, that. You but. have to know about whatever it is that you sell. And, you know, to to answer your other part of the, the other part of your question, a sales background is so, it's sort of like my law background. So while di directly um, we weren't doing anything where I was practicing law, but I used it every day. And I used that legal training and the, and the reasoning skills and the analytical skills every single day, and I continue to use it. And it's the same thing in sales. I use my sales skills every single day. And so while it doesn't matter if you stay in the sales arena, I think that it's the you know a, a sales uh, background is a wonderful skill set to obtain for anybody going out in the business uh, trajectory today. Yeah. yeah, I would agree with that, and it's it's something I learned early on, and <laughs> it wasn't how I wanted to spend my entire career. Right. But but you know when when it goes back to I'm 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 helping somebody, then it felt good and it feels good. So I think that kind of sales attitude. So I, I just have to ask you about tax because I don't get the chance. Not many of my guests have that kind of expertise, but man, tax is so important. To, to know you know for an entrepreneur because it can get you in big trouble um, if you're if you're ignorant in many ways about it so what would be you know one or two things that you would tell every aspiring entrepreneur or every uh, you know young entrepreneur out there who might be early in their building a company what do they need to know about tax and how do they make sure they keep themselves um, you know in good good standing, so to speak, on the tax perspective. Well, so so if I can back up before we discuss tax, you know, you mentioned one or two things. So the two things I tell my kids all the time is, is that, you know, the two most important skills you can graduate 
school and go into the workforce with, number one, the ability to communicate well, the ability to write well, the ability to speak well, the ability to to let the world know what it is you want and need and communicate with other people in a very effective manner. So that's extremely important no matter what you end up doing in life. And I think the second one for business, more specifically for business, is the ability to read balance sheets. I It's amazing to me how many entrepreneurs in the world today cannot read financial statements, not an income statement, balance sheet. And if you have to rely on somebody else in your company or in your life to tell you what your cash position is or is not, that's a very weak position to be in. And so while you don't have to take five accounting classes, I really recommend that everybody be able to have the skill set to at least read simple statements um, to where they they don't have to rely on third parties to give them the basic financial in- information that they need. Yeah. On yeah. the you know, on the tax side specifically, again, I mean we employ a host, uh, you know, we, we use tax attorneys, of course, on all of our transactions, but um, the tax, tax, taxes in general affect every single transaction from, you know, even sales tax, um, you know, figuring out whether we need to collect it or not collect it. We talk about real estate taxes when we go and we buy a property, whether, you know, what we think that real estate tax environment is. And then, of course, on the income tax side, it directs how we form a new company. So whether we set it up as a partnership, as an S-corp, as a C-corp, as a limited liability company, all of those things you can't, you can't know unless you know the basic tax structure of how the uh, tax code is written and um, and then know when to get advice. I think people, they, they think, well, I can wait until I'm making money or until I'm making a lot of money to get some advice. And then sometimes undoing things is costlier than uh, getting that advice at the beginning and doing it right yeah. at the outset. Yeah. Yeah, we and we. I was just talking with Jermaine, who does all my all of our wonderful media work, and you know, learning about depreciation when you're buying a lot of equipment too, and what a savings that can be um, to understand the tax uh, structure opportunities. And if you don't, you might be paying a lot more money than you have to. Or um, so there's. I think there's a lot to that. I love the way you put it. It really affects you in everything you do. So you've got to. It affects you in everything you do. And again, it, these, these are sort of, you know, I go back to my my father used to talk to us incessantly about a whole bunch of different things. And I try to to emulate that in talking to our four kids. And, um, and I really believe today, I mean, everybody seems to want to be an entrepreneur and start their own business. And that's great. I, I am all for it. But what I worry about is I worry that some of the young people don't understand some of the basics that um, are going to be involved, such as, um, you know, to, to make an outsized return, you're going to have to take some big risks. And so 
in life as well. And, and so I think that you have to look inside and say, are you a person that can put it on the line? Are you somebody that if it fails will have the ability to get up off the floor? Again, another life lesson, not just in business, but things happen in life that we are not prepared to deal with. So are you going to be somebody that can mourn that and get past it? Or are you somebody who is just going to be completely spun around and um, not not able to pick themselves you know, up? And so, and, and then I think the third part is, look, everybody that I talk to, every, 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 kid in a business school class, they all want to make a zillion bucks. And that's fine as well. But I think then if you do, you have to understand there's going to be very little balance in your life for a long time. It's just going to be about a grind. It's going to be about putting the hours in and this whole concept of, you know, work-life balance and, and, and taking time to do other things. It, it's, you know, for the very top 1% or 1% of 1%, it, there is no balance and there, there are trade-offs. And, and, and so I think that that's something that is not well uh, um, spoken about today yeah, and I'm, understood. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a whole lot of hard work behind all of those success stories. And we, we tend to see the, and there's a lot of sleepless nights. Uh, and, and you know, it, it, like you said, maybe maybe you are the kind of person that can do this, but do you want it? I mean, it's a life choice, really. And, and It's a life choice. And there yeah. are a lot of people I know of that live on modest incomes and are extremely happy and they live great lives. And, and look, money is not the solution to life. It can make certain parts of life better. It can give you some freedom. It can provide you with certain things. But, but after that point, you know, it's just the way that our society keeps score, but, uh, it's not the, it's certainly not the end all be all. And there are trade-offs for sure. Yeah, and and it's really interesting. I I just heard a gentleman talking about a new book he'd written about you know finding happiness later in life, and he was talking about overhearing somebody eighty years old on the plane talking about they might as well be dead, nobody cared anymore, blah blah blah. And he's a psychologist, so you know he turned around and looked when he got off, and it was actually he didn't say who it was, but he said it's a very well known highly successful people that everybody practically in the world knows. And this person at 80 was feeling like their life didn't matter because he was pointing out that purpose is what really, you know, I think what people really love about entrepreneurs, the real, the entrepreneurs that I talk to, what they love, where their eyes light up is when they talk about the sense of purpose they got from what they were doing. And money's great, but it, it tends to, you know, the investors have that, perp- you know, they want them, they're the, more the capitalists involved, and we have to understand that as entrepreneurs. But I think most entrepreneurs have are driven and willing to have those sleepless nights, because there's something they love and a sense of purpose in it. No question. And I think, you know, most entrepreneurs go out on their own. And what I find, instead of do things collaboratively from the outset, and I think that, you know, one of the suggestions that I have, because I built my business by myself and it is lonely. You're on an island, you're up all night thinking of, you know, is this good? Is this bad? What do I tell this employee? Do I give, you know, a raise or do I, do I not? And, and, and most people don't have sounding boards. And 
I really suggest, I mean, there's the whole mentor-mentee concept, which is good, but you also need peer interaction. You need other people going through what you're going through simultaneously to bounce things off of, to talk um, to talk with about ideas. I'll tell you that I, one of the best things in my life is that I'm involved in some organizations like Young Presidents where you know we we have a small group of seven people so so I'm the oldest most of them are 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 youngish and they're highly successful but we spend 95% of our time talking about failures and talking about the things that we're screwing up and giving each other advice and help and you know we invented something called the $10,000 you know, you know, guarantee where basically, I mean, you know, these are people where if any of us called each other at 2 a.m. and said, I need to borrow $5,000 or $10,000, no questions asked, no promise to give it back, you know, would you do it? And, you know, all of us agreed that, that we are, we are going to do that for each other. And I just don't think people have enough of those people in their lives. Mm -hmm. Some people, their parents wouldn't even do that or their brothers and sisters. And so, and so entrepreneurs in general need a peer group. They need people around them. They need community. And I think that gives fulfillment along with the business that they are growing. Yeah, that I, I almost got cold chills from that. What a great story. And, you know, what a great testament of, to friendship and support. And we all need that. Absolutely. I love that. And, not you know, partners are not always the solution either because those can be problematic. Partners, <laughs> partners are pro I mean, so I had two partners in my life. Ne neither one ended well. And I'll take half the blame on both of those. Uh, but... One of the reasons partnerships don't work is because, Rebecca, we don't ask the hard questions going in, even in marriages, right? Like some right. marriages don't work because we refuse to have the hard conversations. And so when do we have them? Five or 10 years later, when we're like, oh my gosh, I wish I would have known, you know, that you think like this or you value this or don't. Yeah. And, and I just think, again, like we, we just have to force ourselves to how if you're going to partner with somebody, find out how they value money, find out how they value geography, find out how they want to allocate time to the business away from it early on and up front because um, it's very important. That's really good advice. We're all in love in the beginning. Right? <laughs> so so you've, you've led me into uh, a really a question I like to ask all my guests, and that's about failure. We've mentioned it several times, and um, it sounds like you've had a few along the way. Would you have a story or anything you would share about how you um, think about failure and how you how you deal with failure, how you how you you know, personally get through that. Yeah. So it's interesting because I have never really been bothered by failing. I, I mean, I've failed so many times in business and tried things that didn't work, cost me time, cost me money, cost me employees, cost me, cost me everything. And, and but I always, but I did things again. We talked about measured failure at the beginning. And for me, I think that if I'm going to take a risk on something that might fail, it's a measured risk to say, okay, is this proportionate? Am I, am I doing something to where if I succeed, the 
outcome will be great than the loss that I will have in case it doesn't work. And so it's a lot of that that analysis. And so while I've had so many things blow up and 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 fail from business decisions to investing decisions to partnerships, um, number one, I try not to make the same bad decision twice, which I think is key. Um, number two, I try to learn from what it is as to why something went wrong. And then, and then number three, as I said, I, I try to make sure that, that if I'm going in, I, the, the upside is a lot more than the downside. Um, and, and, and so while I don't have one specific dramatic burnout, um, coming in today to do this, I heard a story, um, about the difference between people who who spend their lives in business trying to make something five or ten or twenty percent better versus those people that say we're just going to start again and we're going to try to make it a thousand percent better and the elon musks of the world and the steve jobs of the world are are people who blow things up that most people would just tweak a little bit and i think that's what differentiates real innovation from um, evolution, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's again, goes back to my point where if you want outside rewards, you have to take the 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 huge risks. And the, the bigger the the bigger the vision, right? The bigger the failures probably are going to be. A Absolutely, way. that's right. But the but it's all a choice, and that's that right. I think we've heard that in in your message. This has been so great. So tell me what you're doing these days, Jason. You know, you're you're I think down to one dealership. You yep. told me, and and I know you're on the Embark board with me, and I know you're doing a lot of other things. So what what's in store for Jason now? Well, I I think I've reached the phase of my life where. It's really two-pronged. Number one, it's more experiential. All projects that I do now, I want to be collaborative with other people and have the experience of of collaborating and sharing ideas and building something together within a community of people. Um, and then the other thing is to give back. I, I, I really am spending more time coaching, mentoring, doing nonprofit work. I, I do a lot with pancreatic cancer and, and raise funds and awareness and, and, um, and help people going through uh, that dreadful disease and, and, um, and give back to the Tampa community. I'm very, very fortunate for the successes that I've had. Um, some of it was luck. I'd like to think some of it was some of the hours that I put in. But it's really time in my life to give back to to the greater community, to my children, um, to my friends. And uh, that that's what really gives me pleasure today. You know, it's it's interesting because I've been thinking a lot about, you know, similarities among all the stories that I'm collecting. And I've come up with love, leadership, and legacy. And I see that in your story. You managed to find something you love. You loved the deal and worked with people that you enjoy. And you stepped up as a leader in your industry, made changes, had an impact, and now you're leaving a legacy. So 
congratulations on all that. And it's been a delight to talk to you today. And and I'm excited to share your story with all of our listeners. One thing I always do at the end is ask, and and you've given us so many (laughs) good pieces of advice. But if there was one piece of advice that you would have given, you know, yourself before you started this, or that you would give to one of our aspiring entrepreneurs, one thing that they can take away uh, and again, there have been so many already, but uh, what would that be? I think that the most important thing is to find something that you're really good at and make yourself better at it. I, I think that that is, and whether that's starting a business or starting you know, a dental practice or whatever it is, Become, strive to become the best in what you can be. And I think that, that so many things flow, f- flow from that. And by the way, most of my ideas, Rebecca, I steal from other people because I, <laughs> you know, I hear such great ideas. And, and, and so, um, so, so while I can't take credit for, for a lot of things, I, I, I'm a big believer that happiness and um, joy come from being really good at something, the community that that, that gives you, the, the self-confidence that it gives you, the self-worth, all of that, aside from even the financial um, um, trappings, really, really help to build a fundamentally good life. And so that's that's probably the one piece of advice if I had to drill it down. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And if we could all aspire to a good life, that that's, that's a great aspiration. Thank you, Jason. If our uh, listeners would like to find out more about Kuhn Automotive or you, how could they do that? Is there are you on any social media or is there any anything you want to share about the business? Um, you can contact me. You can get in touch with me at the dealership uh, Kuhn Volkswagen on Kennedy. Um, and uh, I'm there three or four days a week, and I will be, and I'm very accessible. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.